0: This hour on WDET, we're bringing you StoryCorps Detroit. The show where we take interviews of Detroiters by Detroiters and share them with you. The stories in this hour capture the love and struggle that's part of the human experience.
1: And off to my left, I could see this woman making her way up the aisle like she was lost and looking for somebody.
2: There's one seat between two guys and there's another seat beside this other guy.
1: And she kept looking down each row until she got to me and I thought, oh, don't let her sit next to me.
3: We'll also be looking back on memories of what happened in Detroit in 1967, and we'll hear about the city's LGBT dance music
0: scene in the 90s. All those stories and more coming up here on this special hour of StoryCorps Detroit, right after the news. Welcome to a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit. I'm
3: Sasha Ryan. And I'm Laura Herberg. You may have heard the heart-wrenching StoryCorps pieces that air on WDET during Morning Edition every Friday. Well, this past summer, StoryCorps came into Detroit to record local residents in a mobile booth parked in front of the Detroit Institute of Arts.
0: In just a minute, we'll tell you more about that process. But first, we wanted to just dive right in with a story. A love story, actually.
3: In 2004, Ken Gray and Lori Taylor had both recently experienced divorce and heartache. Then one night, Lori decided to go to a play.
2: I saw that the play Yellow Man was being played at the Repertory Theater. And I called down and I said, do you guys have any tickets left, any seats left? They said, no, we're sold out, but you can come down on standby. So that's what I did.
1: It was a play called Yellow Man. that was showing at the Detroit Rep Theater. I'm a fair, light-skinned black man. I've always been called a Yellow Man. So I, I showed up. I walked in and I sat down. Lights were dimming. And off to my left, I could see this woman making her way up the aisle like she was lost and looking for somebody.
2: There's one seat between two guys, and there's another seat beside this other guy.
1: And she kept looking down each row until she got to me. And I thought, oh, don't let her sit next to me. I just want an evening by myself. I don't want to be bothered.
2: So I decided, eh, I'll I'll, I'll sit next to this one guy here.
1: (laughs) She decided to sit next to me.
2: Well, that's when the curtain went up and the play
1: started. So as Yellow Man is going on, there's a little bit of a violent episode that happens.
2: It got intense, right?
1: Right. And
2: next thing I know, I'm gripping the armrest. Well, his hand was already there.
1: She grabs my hand.
2: And so I was like, oh, pardon me, excuse me.
1: It shocked me because I was all into the play, too. And I looked up and this person had my arm. And so I'm focusing now on the play. He had like an intermission. And I said, what's your name? And you said, "Lori." You and I just kind of sat there and kind of talked about what was going on with the play. And I felt at ease with her. I I felt like I could talk to her.
2: And we happened to also exchange phone numbers. Yes. But I never called you. And you never called me. I never
1: called you. Time went on, and I, you know, I had forgotten about Lori. I had forgotten about meeting her. And I remember one day, the whole house was just quiet. And I heard this voice, and it was a resounding voice that said, you'll meet your wife today in Eastern Market, but you need to go now.
2: I'm walking at the Eastern Market.
1: She walked past me so fast, I couldn't even remember her name. And I kept thinking, what is her name? And that's when this voice came back again, and it said, Lori Taylor. And I said, Lori Taylor, Lori Taylor. And she turned around and said, dude. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know
2: who you were at first, remember? Mm. Because it had been like six months since I saw you last. So, like, I had to stare for a minute, and then I recognized who you
1: were. Mm -hmm. But I know you said you had a poetry Mm -hmm. reading or something that you had to go to. So I said, oh, um, is there any possibility that uh, I can see you, meet you there or something?
2: Right. So I gave you the address, right?
1: Right, Of course, I couldn't find it.
2: (laughs) Didn't you go all the way back home because you left your phone or right. something?
1: Right, and back then they didn't have GPS, so I didn't, I couldn't GPS my way to find you anyway. So I ended up calling you again and setting up another date to meet you at your no, house. No,
2: you actually said, mm-hmm. you called me and you go, well, what are you doing now? Well, I said, well, I'm pretty much in for the evening now. Mm-hmm. And that's when you said, well, can I come over? Yeah, another date. <laughs> Same date. <laughs> yeah, okay.
3: That was Ken Gray and Lori Taylor Gray. The two dated just three months before getting married. They've now been together 13 years.
0: Their story was recorded right here in Detroit inside the StoryCorps mobile booth. It was parked in front of the DIA for about a month. And, Lori, you got to take a peek inside, didn't you?
3: Yeah. So the mobile booth is really an Airstream trailer turned recording booth. Morgan Feigl Stickles is a site manager for StoryCorps, and he showed me around inside. Here's a clip from that. Oh, this is not what I expected.
4: How, how is it different?
3: It's darker and more intimate looking.
5: Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it is that, you know, part of like trying to close out the outside world is to have this kind of intimate space. Some people view it as, you know, like a sacred space for, for it, um, but at least a, a safe
1: space for, for talking to each other.
0: So what is it like inside? There was
3: a little office area with a table and some cabinets. Then down the hall, there was a small, warmly lit room with a table and two microphones. And really, that's about it. So people
0: like Ken and Lori signed up, or some were recruited to do interviews. They were given an appointment time, and then they just showed up and talked to each other for about 40 minutes. Is that right?
3: Yeah, well, there's a StoryCorps facilitator who sits in on the interviews, but they don't often intervene.
0: So how does StoryCorps capture such powerful moments then?
3: Well, when I was inside the booth, I asked StoryCorps facilitator Chelsea Aguilera that very question. And this is what she said. It's a magic space uh, where sometimes people walk in and they don't say a word until the recording starts. And then they open up and uh, it's amazing what, what people have to say when they're really given the space.
0: Next up, Jennifer Smith is the founder of Closing the Gap, a nonprofit that helps students make their way through college. Smith met one of her mentees, Rouletta Street, when the young woman was a senior in high school.
6: Sometimes, you know, when I'm talking to you and you kind of describe, like, how you were and what was going on um, with you prior to us meeting, like, I'm always shocked, right? So, like, kind of, like, like, let's just reflect on this moment as we move ahead and just, like, let's go back there.
4: So how far do you want to go back? So let's go back to, let's go
6: back to like age 10.
4: Okay, so when I was 10, you know, I lived with my grandmother and him, Tramick. Um, I don't want to go too far into details, but, you know, it wasn't that great of a situation. Um, she didn't really have the means to take care of me. You know, it was a neglectful and abusive situation. So, eventually, uh, my mother came home from prison when I was 12, and she came home kind of the same thing, and then I went back with my aunt and started going to school. Um, and Then I attended, like, five different high schools since then because I had entered the foster care system, and then when you move from group home to group home or from shelter to group home, you basically change schools for that reason. So, you caught me at a time. Um, I was just trying to get it done. I didn't have the best GPA, but I worked hard for the one I had.
6: But when I met you, I absolutely knew that you were not reflective of that GPA, right? So well, here's what I remember. And this had to be like February of your graduation year. And I remember you saying, hey, I want to graduate and I want to go to college. Just seeing you now and hearing you. You are so beautiful and so strong, and I'm so I'm so proud of you. And I just remember your freshman year, and after we had moved you in and gone to orientation, and we were excited about this new opportunity, but I just remember you being kind of two months in, and you were really struggling with living in the dorm.
4: Actually, if we backtrack my senior year, I was at the secure group home. I was in the low security area. And so it was similar to a college campus. We didn't have any outside interaction, you know, it was just us. We used to um get locked in our rooms at night and we would have to ask to use the restroom and our showers were timed and it, you know. So, actually this is, like, funny, though. I used to still time myself at school in the showers. And, like, if I didn't make the time, like, I would just kind of get anxious. And then.
6: Because you had to be out of the shower at a certain time yeah. when you were in residential.
4: Yeah. And, like, one of one of your other mentees, changed, you know, and he asked me one day, like, why do you take your showers so fast? And I was just like. I have to but after he said that and I thought about it like I'll be in the shower for like 30 minutes at a time because I feel like I didn't I didn't have the ability to do it before and people always ask me now why do you take showers so long because I didn't I wasn't able to before
6: you're a senior in college yeah so tell me about some of the experiences at college that made you happy like this is the right place to be
4: Sometimes I do feel a little envious to people that have their families or grew up with their families or two-parent homes, but, you know, attending the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, which is an HBCU, Historically Black College University, a lot of those people are family-oriented, and so a lot of people around me, they, you know, they always are telling me about their family stories, their family trips, and all that stuff, and at first I kind of just felt like, I don't want to hear this, I don't, you know, but over time, I started to appreciate it more because even if I didn't have it, just to hear someone else talk about it um, was helpful to me because I can imagine, you know, their happy moments.
6: So I want to show you a picture and Uh I would like, when you see the picture, I would like for you to look at that person in the picture and Take a moment to reflect on all of the things that um, you might have been thinking in that moment.
4: Are you trying to make me cry?
6: <laughs> and what would you say to that person now?
4: Oh, my God. <laughs> I did not want to cry.
6: So this is a picture of us, the group, the University of Arkansas group. A palm (laughs) love group during orientation. So it was the three of us. That was your first time on a plane, right? It was. First time on a plane.
4: I would tell her (laughs) that you're okay, that you can do it. (laughs) You're much better than everything people said that you were. You know what? I will also tell her that, honey, that outfit is not it. <laughs> that is not it. <laughs> that black purse did not match.
0: That was Closing the Gap founder Jennifer Smith and her mentee Roulette Street. Street is now a senior at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff.
3: You're listening to a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit on 1019 WDET. Coming up after the break.
7: I was getting ready to go down there and try to you know, started looting myself and my aunties. You come right back here and you get back on this porch. (laughs) So, So that's all I did is I just watched.
0: We'll have stories from people who witnessed the events of 1967, and we'll hear from kids today about what they've learned about the violence and its impact on Detroit. This is 101.9 WDET. You're listening to a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit. I'm Sasha Ryan.
3: And I'm Laura Herberg. StoryCorps was here in Detroit with their mobile booth recording stories during the 50th anniversary of the city's civil unrest. And so the events of 1967 were on the minds of a lot of people who came in to do StoryCorps interviews.
0: In just a few minutes, we'll have recollections from Detroiters who were teenagers back in 1967 and who witnessed the fires and looting that happened here But first, let's hear from some youth today regarding what they've learned about what went down. WDET visited the James and Grace Lee Boggs School in Detroit after they wrapped up a unit studying what transpired. I I would call it a rebellion just because a riot makes it seem like people were
8: just like burning stuff and destroying stuff just because... But there were reasons, like people were really, they wanted change. Well, in 1967, on July 23rd, I believe, um, the blind pig was raided because it was an illegal drinking and gambling bar. And somebody threw a bottle at a police car, so then
6: that's when police got mad. They added a little bit too much force, and so they tried to arrest all 85 people who were there. And the entire community, like around the bar, got kind of angry, a lot angry, and they kind of just exploded with rage.
4: It was a riot. It was like back before the riot, riot happened. People was getting police, and it was segregation happening, racism and sexism. So I guess the black people had uh, fed up enough. And it just took that one time to just, like, too much. It was just too much, and that just pushed them over the edge. It felt, like, really sad because 43 people had died, and a whole lot of uh, houses got messed up because of
8: the rebellion. Well, it changed Detroit in a lot of ways. There are more black police officers and more black officials. After the riot it led to our first black mayor, Coleman A Young. I believe a lot of people moved out of Detroit and then Detroit started being seen as like a really violent city. Some of the
4: things that were happening in sixty seven still happen today. They just don't happen as outwardly I would say. People really still don't get along. I know that like the whites like still like kind of don't like the blacks still but I don't like I like all colors, like I'm not racist.
8: Nothing they keep saying nothing like barely changed from fifty years ago because everybody's still getting killed. Everybody don't even care about what happened in 50 years ago. They don't want to make their place better. They just want to um keep going at it. My name is Kyrie Crosby and I'm eleven years old. I am Sharon A. Johnson, and I'm 12 years old. Uh, my name is Ajani DeFris. I am 12 years old. My name is Lily Catherine Bernard-Smankowski, and I'm 10 years old. Okay, my name is Talia Hope Brown, and I'm 12. Hi, I'm Elijah Watson, and I'm 12 years
4: old.
6: My name is Kamari Ray, and I'm 13 years old. My name is Oscar Campbell, and I'm 10
3: years old. I am Tavia Crosby, and I am 13 years old. Those were students from the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, a public charter school in Detroit.
0: For our next story, 82-year-old Clarice Rogers sat down in the StoryCorps mobile booth with her son, Curtis Rogers, Jr. She asked him what he was up to as a 14-year-old when the violence erupted in the city on July 23rd. At the time, their family had just moved to northwest Detroit from a neighborhood near Boston Edison.
7: I caught the bus over to the old neighborhood to just hang out with my friends. There, for some reason, no one was, not all my friends closest friends were around. So I decided I was going to walk over to uh, your brother's house, my uncle. I was walking around like a Christmas tree. I <laughs> had a white straw hat, black band, little red feather sticking out. I had a navy blue short sleeve gabardine shirt, western stitch, and I had these lime green pants. <laughs> and I mean, I just thought I was just Sharpest dude ever. <laughs> and walking over, I crossed liver noise. liver noise. was clear, and, I mean, it was just a beautiful summer day. And I got to Dexter, and all this smoke and people and commotion, and I'm like, what is going on, you know? I didn't know, but I continued on and I got down to uh my cousin's house. And my friends over there, they were, man, it's going it's 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 going on. I don't know, What's going on? It's a riot, a riot. So I I snuck away and I walked over to Linwood with my friend, which was about a block away. And the same thing, smoke People chaos. People just running and looting and everything. And I was like, "Wow!" So we go back to the house, and we we're sitting on the porch and we're watching all these people in cars. They have car loads of stuff. <laughs> just radios. People had color TVs, suits. They had bicycles. Whatever, you know. I was getting ready to go down there and try to, you know, start looting myself and my aunties. You come right back here and you get back on this porch. <laughs> so so that's all I did is I just watched. I, I had a ringside seat. and I just watched people just going back and forth all day long. They burned the businesses on... Linwood, and Vicksburg, and Virginia Park. And to this day, they're still vacant lots. That started the decline of the neighborhoods. Yeah. And of course when Because those t- businesses never came back, and they're still not there. Right. There's nothing there. But one thing that I want to get back to was that I never really noticed any— Actual race war type stuff, like violence, you know, whites and blacks fighting, that type yeah. of thing. It, no, it wasn't really like that because, I mean, there weren't that many white folks in the neighborhood anyway. Who, who So it wasn't about that. I, I, the whole thing arose uh, from um, back then. The police
9: very were known
7: as—they were very pre- ever-present— And they were trying to maintain the established suppression-type thing, uh, authority, and, you know. Very much so. They were mostly white. Yeah. And they rode four deep. Yeah. Four deep meaning four. It wasn't like car 54. You got two guys in there with a partner. They rode four deep. That was the name of the police in Detroit, in the, on the inner city, city uh, where all the blacks live, was the Big Four. Oh, I We'd see. The I remember four. that term. Yeah, yeah, the Big Four. Yeah, to us, it was like an occupation of our neighborhood, trying really disturbing our vibe.
3: That was Curtis Rogers Jr. speaking to his mother, Clarice Rogers.
0: You're listening to a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit. Right now, we're exploring recollections from 1967. That summer, Detroiter Bill Williams was also 14 years old. He lived not far from the intersection of 12th and Claremont. Here he tells his friend Cindy Munoz about the destruction he witnessed in his upper-middle-class neighborhood.
10: Bill, one thing I want to ask you is that when we were talking about this the other day, you became very emotional, and even today coming down here, you seem very emotional. Why do you feel so emotional talking about this?
5: You know, for years, uh, it was always like, oh, yeah, I remember the riots. Yeah, I remember the riots. But I never had to reconnect, get in touch again with my feelings of the riots, my my family sacrificing to to get where they did, and then having so much of the destruction ruin their dream. Mm. So the morning of the riot, we were preparing to go to church as we normally would. And my granddad was talking about some type of disruption out in the neighborhood. So my cousins and I, we ran to the corner just to see what we could see. And as we looked south towards Claremont and further down 12th Street, we could see just chaos and rubble debris in the street, some smoke. It looked like something from a movie, something that I look at now that looks like Beirut or a third world country. So we wondered, is it going to strike our our little corner there? And it did. Later, um, one of the building's stores caught fire. And then the next building,
10: where were the firefighters?
5: When someone in the neighborhood called the fire department to come and put the fire out, they had been given a response that, you know, we'll get a fire rig over there. But, uh, you know, the firemen have had people throwing things at them and shooting, shooting at yeah. them. So they were hesitant to, to come in and really put the fire out. Some neighbors in the community, my my uncle, I know a couple of the men across the street and so forth, guaranteed the city or the fire department that they would protect the firemen okay. should they okay. come and put the fire out. So when the fire trucks eventually did arrive, you could see neighbors with um, really rifles and shotguns standing on on, on the street. I can't even believe it was, uh, it, was, it was surreal. We could see the, the armored vehicles roll down, and you could hear rifle fire and the staccato fire of automatic weapons and, and large weapons.
10: Was that the military then? This is the
5: military firing, very large uh-huh. weapons. During the day, it wasn't as, as bad. My cousins and I, we would walk down to the corner uh, out of curiosity. Like boys, wanting to see <laughs> real soldiers, <laughs> army men. So we would walk down there, and we uh, we talk to them, and they were they're really friendly. You know, you, you could tell that they were a little anxious, but but they were friendly. And so my, my grandma would have me bring them, us bring them pops, and you know they were really That's appreciative. Nice. Yeah. And after a while, instead of it being uh, exciting. It kind of wore on you, and you became a little bit nervous because uh, you wanted the shooting to eventually stop.
10: So what do you think is the legacy of the riots?
5: I just this week drove over to that house that we used mm-hmm. to live in, and that corner is still bare. Right now, the the city is, is resurging. There's a lot of money being put in the city The downtown area is booming, and I understand that that is the hub of a city. I have great hope that the spokes of that hub will reap some of the benefits of what's going on. It hasn't in 50 years, but I I still have hope.
3: That was Bill Williams speaking to his friend Cindy Munoz about what he witnessed in his neighborhood in July of 1967.
0: So we've been talking a lot about StoryCorps' visit to Detroit this summer because that's when most of these stories were recorded. But that wasn't the first time StoryCorps came to Detroit. They've actually been here a couple times.
3: One was early in 2017 when they recorded interviews at a place called the Urban
0: Consulate. That's where Detroiter Marsha Music recounted this story of how her father tried to protect his record store in the summer of 1967. I would start
11: out on the night in a hot summer day. It was in July of 1967. And my father got a phone call in the middle of the night Someone told him, there's something going on over on 12th Street. He was a record producer. He had been producing records in Detroit in his record store, which he opened in 1945 in Detroit after World War II. He produced the people that walked into his record shop off of Hastings Street because it was a reflection of the dynamism of the city at the time. Detroit was extremely dynamic. So my father had received this phone call on the night of July in 1967, July 23rd. And he goes over to the record shop on 12th Street because now he has moved. He'd been over there on uh, 12th Street about seven years. And he goes over to 12th Street and finds that the unrest is full-blown. By this time, we knew what was going on because this type of unrest had been happening all over the country. And it was like almost like a matter of time before it came to Detroit. But see, one of the curious things about Detroit was that it was believed that unrest of this magnitude would not happen here. But there was an ignoring of the real turmoil that was going on underneath the surface, you know, where blacks could not get jobs in uh, certain industries, they would bar them from skilled trades, they were relegated to certain jobs. So you had a level of oppressiveness that existed all over the city, along with the police presence too. So my dad had been on 12th Street in the second day, and he had gone over there to protect his store. He gathered up his gun and, and sat outside the store with the other store owners, as the looting began to move southward down 12th Street. And at a certain point, the National Guard told him he had to leave. And he was always very bitter about that. There was a part of him that always felt that if he could have just stayed there and protected his store, it would not have been ruined. I remember the stench of smoke and the Evidence of complete mayhem and the hellishness of 12th Street on that day when we returned. The hellishness of those burned buildings and those destroyed buildings and glass everywhere. So when we walked back into that record store and I could see all of these reel-to-reel tapes on the ground opened up. And these tapes were all over the scotch tape, brown scotch tape were all over the ground as we kind of stumbled over all of this debris and debt treatise. And I remember even as this kid knowing that there was a whole lot of voices in those tapes that would never be heard, you know, because that was probably my dad's lifetime of tapes of all of these people that he had been recording for many years. So I have said, and I do say, that the day that my father walked into that record shop and saw that his livelihood like that had been destroyed and his life's work had been destroyed, I say that my father died on that day. And I am very, very grateful that I was old enough that I remember my father when he was a great man on Hastings Street.
3: That was Detroiter Marsha Music telling how the looting of 1967 impacted her father's life.
0: It was produced by Hannah Barg. You've been listening to a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit on 1019 WDET. If you're just tuning in, you can hear these stories and more by downloading the StoryCorps Detroit podcast. That's StoryCorps, all one word, with core spelled C-O-R-P-S. And don't forget to
3: add Detroit so you can find the StoryCorps episodes produced right here in the Motor City.
0: Coming up after the break, a look at the LGBT dance scene during the HIV-AIDS epidemic.
12: I thought that only gay people listened to house music because I didn't hear it until I went to a club.
3: Plus, how a knock on a door led to an unlikely
10: friendship. Bernice, why did you come to my house here in Detroit?
3: And renowned poet Jessica Care-Moore does an interview with her 10-year-old son. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to 1019 WTET. This is a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit. I'm Sasha Ryan. And I'm Laura
3: Herberg. Longtime friends Adriel Thornton and Lauren Hood say that in the early 90s, there were places in Detroit and Windsor where you could go that skin color and what you did for a living didn't matter. Hood says she was introduced to this world by Thornton.
13: You took me to my first rave party. Do you remember this rave in Canada?
9: Yeah, it was like a warehouse, but not like a huge warehouse. Was it in
13: Canada, or does my memory
9: make stuff up? No, (laughs) yeah, it probably, it could have been in Canada. It wasn't, it could have been in Windsor, because now I have a vague memory of that, too.
13: All of my friends were very, like, conservative and... I don't know, not very expressive. Right. And then you came along and like, come into my crazy world. And I was like, <laughs> 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 like those experiences like totally flipped my script. Wow. But you were yeah. already like engrossed in it, right? Yeah,
9: yeah, yeah. Cause it, you know, I was at that point already throwing parties, throwing raves and things and was like sort of fully engaged in that sort of culture, which was, at the time, it was still very, very underground. One of the best ways to describe it would be like the, I mean, all the misfits. That's it.
13: Kind yeah. of went there and had some
9: place to, to um, congregate.
13: What I loved about that scene is that it was non judgy. Right. I yeah. always felt like super nerdy and uptight, but I would go there and people would just be, oh, your aura is so right. like. <laughs> 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 you have like right. really good energy. Right. I'm just like really happy to meet you. Right, right, right. And like no one ever asked, like, what do you do? Right. Or yeah, like, yeah, where yeah. are you from? Like these questions that like put you in a category. People are just like, hey, good to meet you. Right. No, I don't about like that your vibe 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 and like being in that moment (laughs) Mm -hmm. together it wasn't about all the other stuff right
9: that's what was attractive about it to me especially in the beginning was that it was i like to say it was the living breathing example of like dr king's dream Mm -hmm. but taking it to a a little bit further of like striving for equality Mm -hmm. in a sense that you recognize human beings for other things other yes. than these outward things and it's
13: interesting you bring that up too because I don't remember race being such an issue in that particular world right yeah right, yeah, it was, it, yeah. it wasn't you're absolutely right it wasn't
9: I mean it was you know black kids white kids all kinds of people kids in baggy jeans mm-hmm. dancing next to a couple in formal wear because mm-hmm. they had just come from some you know a wedding or something yeah. you know and nobody was sitting there being like oh look at them they don't belong I it was like everybody that. belonged and the more diverse it was, the better.
0: That was Adriel Thornton and Lauren Hood. Their interview was recorded at the Urban Consulate early in 2017. Next up, Damon Magic Percy and Curtis Lipscomb were no
3: strangers to the dance floor in the gay clubs of Detroit in the 1980s and 90s. Here they look back on how that scene provided refuge for their community.
12: I thought that only gay people listened to house music because I didn't hear it until I went to a club. You know, Heaven was like the one place we went to at after hours, you know, open at two o'clock, you dance until six, you know, celebrities came. I mean, Madonna was in there hiding from the press. Yeah, Dennis Rodman was hiding from the press, but you know, Detroiters are very not starstruck. So it's just kind of like, oh, she's here. Is she going (laughs) to dance or is she going to move, you know, out the way so we can continue (laughs) dancing. During that period, that whole 89 to 93, there were a lot of um, records on the charts that were house-influenced.
14: I'm, I'm going to suggest that what you experienced was the height of popular house music. I remember mm-hmm. the formation of house music with these independent labels out of Chicago mm-hmm. and having these, you, these DJs from the Midwest, Chicago and Detroit. DJs from both cities were traveling. And I think what erupted was a unique sound for both of us. So Detroit owned techno Mm -hmm. while they owned
12: house. So now people are rediscovering, like, now they want to know about house music, the history of it. They want to know what it was that captured us during that time. What was it that we found in that?
14: Because of the HIV AIDS epidemic, which, you know, we have to address in this conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, the bar was the CNN of our community where that's before the cable. We went to the bar to find out, you know, how well are we all doing?
12: Mm -hmm. If somebody you saw last week. Wasn't there the next week? Exactly. you like, well, where is Brian or something?
14: And so that place where alcohol is, you know, is taken in for pleasure becomes that place where we um, affirm those it's a that are, place. yeah, meeting place, and affirm those that we lost, you mm-hmm. know, and, and keep keep each other
12: up. You know, people were being decimated. You know, we were still, you know, going out. Come to, on now, to be free. Come on now, from what was going on at home. You know, losing people daily. I mean, I just know in the mid nineties for me, I was losing people like weekly. I would, and I got so scared to like go away on vacation. I come back and they'd be like, "Oh, you know, so and so's funeral." I'm like, "Well, when did they die?" It was liberation to be with your, be with your own kind, dancing, healthy in these spaces where you belong to each other, right on, and to yourself and everybody just kind of uplifted you because looking back. 20 years ago is so many people that are not here.
14: I think think that's maybe why we're all so close to one another because of these experiences that Mm -hmm. nobody understands but us. Yeah. You know, uh, and maybe that's why, you know, you think about these spaces where we can protect and gather. Right.
12: Then also... You had the slow song at the end of the night.
14: That is a part of the uh, night experience that I miss.
12: We were dancing, so we definitely Mickey Howard and oh. Stephanie Mills and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh Come my on, God, he loves me. But <laughs> not really. He loves but, me. but for
14: three minutes, you so, believed it? For four minutes and
12: 16 seconds, <laughs> yeah, we exactly. were married. And exactly. you were name our kids and have a dog. Exactly.
0: that was Curtis Lipscomb and Damon Magic Percy and this is a special hour of StoryCorps Detroit
3: In our next story we meet best friends 55-year-old Tate Austin and 94-year-old Bernice Leatherwood They explain how their love of architecture began what they call
10: an unlikely friendship Bernice why did you come to my house here in Detroit That house <laughs> It is funny how you can adopt, you
15: can mentally adopt things. You know, some people like animals and cats and dogs and whatnot. I'm a person that really like housing. I like designs and buildings. And your house was, the house sat empty for years, and
10: I would always pass this house that was so amazing when you drove up. You were driving at that time still. Yeah, I was. 3 driving. years ago or 4 4 years ago you 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 drove up. You you were wearing those nice little heels. I don't know what shoes I was wearing. I clearly heard it on the stairway when you went upstairs to the 34 oh, maids' quarters. Okay. You were like, chok, 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 chok. Very fast. I could barely catch up. It, it was amazing. Your energy, how you rolled in. You asked me a, a hundred questions about it. You were so happy to look around. The, the
15: average person wouldn't have had that much nerve. What did I cause? I mean, what caused me to do that? Unless it was, I think it was the spirit. I just <laughs> was... It was something that caused me to stop and meet you. Today.
10: This house has a soul. It, it really carries some special presence inside of it. It does. It does. That's I why didn't you know loved that. It. I, yes. But, but you, it must have you been. You loved it like a baby, like your baby <laughs> that you don't have. <laughs> Do you remember that when I went away, I kind of gave you a hug and then uh, you drove away? But then you left a note with my neighbors when I was away. You left a note that um, you needed me to call you.
15: Yeah, I missed you. Like,
10: yes, but you also not only missed me, you gave me that dramatic gift of the dining room set. It's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Redwood uh, handwork table, well, the, w- which unfolds. You know how many people I can see sit now? 12. a 12. And uh-huh. Didn't you say you bought it when you didn't have a house yet? I bought it before I had a house. <laughs> We had a for sto- house we, for the we, house. We, <laughs> Yeah,
15: <laughs> but um, we had a store in Detroit called Crowley Millers. There was Hudsons and Crowley Millers, and you know how girls will do and kids will do. You you go around and look at things and shop. You're not buying anything, but you're looking. It's a window shopping. Window shopping. That's yeah, right. I have
10: that disease yeah, too. Window <laughs> shopping.
15: So I uh, was up in the furniture department at Crowley's. And this dining room suite was sitting there. And I saw the big sign, Redwood. Well, I thought about those Redwood trees in California. Yes. <laughs> and I looked at that dining room suite, and I looked at that dining room suite. I said, I'm going to buy this. I don't know where I'm <laughs> going to put it, but I'm going to buy it. Because I hadn't got a house. In fact, I hadn't gotten married. Uh-huh. And I was I think we were dating. I think we were dating. But anyway... I put it in the layaway, and I started paying on it. My husband didn't know I had been paying on it (laughs) until we were married. (laughs) But after I got married, it was paid off. Well, that dining room set, I'm so glad that you have it. And I think that going back to the spirit, I think that I wouldn't have given it to anyone else but you.
3: Thank you so much, Bernice. I
15: love you. I love you too,
3: Tate. Thank you. That was lifelong Detroiter Bernice Leatherwood speaking with Russian native Tate Austin.
0: You've been listening to an hour-long special from StoryCorps Detroit. and our final piece, we'll hear from local poet Jessica Care Moore and her 10-year-old son, King Thomas Moore. Here's an intimate look at their relationship as they discuss hardship, love, and poetry. What were
8: the hardest moments you had when I was growing up?
16: Well, you're still growing up. <laughs> um, I think... The hardest thing was, was having to leave Atlanta, Georgia. You weren't born in Detroit. You were born in Atlanta, Georgia, in Northside Hospital. And I left um, Atlanta and left your dad and when he, we were just 10 months old. So that was very difficult. I had a—mommy and daddy had a really big house in Atlanta. And when our marriage fell apart, I felt like I had to make the decision um, to come back home to my mother and my family here and have the family support um, so that I can raise you um, On my own and so that was a difficult decision but it's a decision that I really I I walk with because I know it was the best decision
8: do you believe in love at first sight
16: (laughs) your mommy is always in love I believe in love in general Um, love at first sight not really but I believe I think it takes time to really love a person because I think you have to know a person in order to love them but with you it was love at first sight. <laughs> so I think with children it's easier, but with um, as you get older, you have to take your time um, with who you give your heart to because your heart can get broken. I want so Emmy ask you about love. Have you fallen in love yet? No. <laughs> no. Well, well. No. What do you mean well? What does that mean? No. Any crushes? Come on, tell me the business. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I want to, can I ask you something? Yeah. You're a published poet. You're just 10 years old, and you've published your first book at nine. And um, I want to know when you realized you were gifted as a poet, when you realized that you could write.
8: I think when I wrote my first poem, actually, I don't remember the name of it, I don't remember how it went, but it was, when I wrote it, I just felt like it was. Special, not like roses are red and violets are blue.
16: It's <laughs> a pretty famous poem, though. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was looking in your journals, and what made me uh, encourage you to continue to write is you were writing a lot about mommy being a single mom, and you're writing, you said something really beautiful. You said, um, My mom is my best, what did you say?
8: Chance of becoming a man.
16: Yeah. Tell me why you said that.
8: Because. You're single and my father isn't with me and that doesn't matter anymore because you're just all I need to become a man. Oh
16: my goodness. Don't make me cry. (laughs) Do you feel different than other kids? Because we've gone to we've been you've been homeschooled and you've been in regular schools and I want to know about your experience with other people your age. What is what's it like to be king when mommy's not around?
8: I wouldn't say hard, but it's kind of hard it, it's fun but still it's bullying problems you know that already I've been being bullied almost all the years I've been in school except for homeschool like when I was at homeschool it was a very little classroom with like maybe seven kids and no one bullied me it was everything nice but when I go to other schools they're
16: kind of mean. How do you deal with the bullying?
8: You know, most kids would just, like, punch or kick someone seriously hard, but I would probably just... It's fat to say run, but run to a teacher. Right. And then they would get in trouble. But if I punch someone, it's a different story, and I'm also a part of it. But um, what is the most difficult time you had as a teen?
16: Some of my friends started getting killed in Detroit uh, when I was very, just much a teenager. So as a teenager, having to go to funerals and of people that were my age getting murdered here in Detroit was probably difficult for me.
8: It's not really a question, but for myself, I miss someone. Yeah. It, it's kind of sad. I don't think I told you, but I had a friend. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in my class. We just hanged out sometimes and... Um, I saw him on... I was watching the news with my grandma, and I saw him on the news saying he died. Who? I don't know. I forgot his name, but, um... I don't know. You didn't tell me about that. I didn't, but, um...
16: We'll have to get a hold of his parents, okay? Friendships are really important to you? hmm Do you think we're good friends?
8: Yes. Why? We're more than friends. Sit up to the mic.
16: Why do you think we connect so good?
8: I don't know why,
16: <laughs> but
8: we definitely do. I don't know why, though. What is the secret that you wanted to tell me that you never told me?
16: I don't know. I don't keep and I tell you everything. Can you? No, you don't. I promise. I can't think of anything. That, I mean, that I was quiet when I was uh, growing up, believe it or not. I went to all-white Catholic school from first through uh, eighth grade. I was in predominantly white Catholic schools in Detroit and I was shy. Um, Believe it or not, I was a lot more like you than not. Um, And that when I went to a Detroit public school for the first time, um, mostly um, black students from Detroit, I was really scared my first day and I cried and I wanted to come home because um, I didn't feel, uh, at, I didn't feel comfortable there. Um, I dressed really different. Um, some of the kids said, you talk like a white girl because I've been in, in parochial schools my whole life. I just spoke proper English. And, and so I got bullied too. And, um, but I pushed through it and I used sports and, and my voice as a, as a writer, just like you are to get past all of those things.
8: Wow. Uh, I didn't know you would were shy. Yeah. I didn't know that you were shy and quiet. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I was. <laughs> you yell your poems louder than me. <laughs> I do.
16: <laughs> How would you describe yourself in one word?
8: Proud. Uh-huh. And are you proud of me?
16: I am the proudest mommy in the whole entire universe. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That was poet Jessica Kerr Moore and her son, King Thomas Moore.
0: And that concludes this special hour of StoryCorps Detroit. The stories you heard were recorded by StoryCorps and produced by Laura Herberg. Our music is by Sam Bobian. I'm Sasha Ryan.
3: I'm Laura Herberg, and this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. For more stories with Detroiters interviewing Detroiters, go to WDET.org slash StoryCorps. And thanks for listening. StoryCorps Detroit
11: is supported by the Detroit Historical Society.